All right, let's turn to Ephesians this morning, please. We're continuing. Our series on the doctrine of the mystery today. As I proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ according to the revelation of a mystery today, I'm doing so certainly cherishing the memory of Rochelle Johns Wright, who since the last time we were here, passed into the presence of the one who loves her unimaginably. And she grew up in this ministry many of the years of her early life and her formative years with her brothers Fran and Steve and her faith only grew from that moment on and she was a wonderful servant of Christ and I know she'll be deeply missed. She's loved beyond what you can imagine here so you can imagine how unimaginably she's loved there and waits for us all. So, okay, I drew a picture. I dreamed of this picture, and I drew it, and this morning it's already in print. We, I brought it in, and Kathy put it in the printer. It's already printed, and what it does is it conceptualizes two series that we're teaching, both of them, the Doing and Living Theology series on Wednesday nights, which will have part 12 coming up, and this is part 7 of the Doctrine of the Mystery, and this conceive, this is a conception of the five notions in God. God is one, one Yahweh. The Lord our God is one Yahweh. And there are four divine relations, that being paternity, filiation, active and passive spiration, three divine persons, two divine processions, two divine missions, and those missions have an objective related to all creation, and that's called the mystery of God's will. Mystery of God's will we've been building up to in an exegesis of a run-on sentence, which is an overture and a summary of the entire epistle of Ephesians by Paul, in which that mystery of God's will is defined as God's intention and his determination, his unstoppable resolution to sum up gather in and sum up all things and all beings in the heavens and on earth throughout all the course of time in Christ. We're going to see that phrase in Christ eight times in a very few verses. And well, there's a lot to do here. So my prayer is that the seed would find good ground today. And I know it will among you. Luke twenty three forty six. Jesus called out with a loud voice, father, into your hands, I entrust my spirit. And saying this, he breathed his last. First Corinthians fifteen twenty four a and twenty eight b together. Then the end, when he Christ hands over the kingdom to God, so that God may be all in all. Take those two verses together and meditate on them. I think it'll be profitable for you. So this is the cross-pollination of two series that have now intersected at the cross. And that's why I have made this particular drawing. As you know, at the top of the cross, there was a placard in which it said, Jesus, the 
king of the Jews in language, all the languages that were available at that time. And I put Yahweh there because the manifestation of God is most potent and most clear in a crucified man on the cross. Yahweh, the one God, is one Yeshua, the king of the Jews. And therefore, we have the intersection of both of these today in the mystery of God's will. That'll be the title of the message. We'll also be going to Ephesians 4, if time permits. There are five notions in God. God is one, is the first notion. Listen up, Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord, one Yahweh. God is one being. God is a spirit, as we've learned in DLT. You don't really say God is a person because the triune God is a spirit made of three persons, three distinct personal subjects. The second notion, N-O-T-I-O-N, in God. In God, there are four divine relations, paternity, filiation, active spiration, and passive spiration. Third, in God, there are three divine persons in relation. They are defined by those relations, filiation, spiration, breathing, and begetting. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the Holy Spirit is called the third person, and I think wrongly in the distinction between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's quite possible that the Holy Spirit was also present in the begetting of the Son, as the Spirit sometimes takes on the characteristic of the Mother, the Father, Therefore, the spirit was present in the beginning of the son in his eternal personhood. And therefore, we're going to get out of the linear thinking that sometimes comes out of Western theology. But I might hit that on Wednesday. It's a thing called filioque, F-I-L-I-O-Q-U-E. But in any case, in God, there are three divine persons in relation, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. In God, the fourth of these notions, there are two internal, eternal divine processions. The eternal procession of the Son by eternal begetting and the eternal procession of the Holy Spirit by eternal spiration or breathing. And in fifth, and this is the one where we're hitting the cross beam of the cross here, the doctrine of the mystery, the mystery is right here in the crossbeam. The five notions go this way. The divine missions relate to an objective of God related to a procession out from God, which is all of created reality in all of time over the course of all time. All of created reality in the heavens and the earth summed up in Christ is God's goal. So the divine missions are directed toward an external divine objective. And that's a goal with regard to all of created reality. That's a goal named the mystery of God's will. So today, in part 7, and Wednesday in part 12 of another series, we have the conjunction of the cross beam and the vertical beam of the cross. It's all related to what is called instauration in the scriptures, in fact, we're going to see that the key word we're looking at in Ephesians 1.10 is anakephaliao in the Greek. Anakephaliao. Anakephaliao is sort of like our word apokatastasis, 
only it's better. Anakephaleao has to do with the heading up and gathering up of and the inclusion of all things in Christ. It's followed by a famous little phrase that we like to call tapanta. The recapitulation of all things and then en Christo. This little word, anakephaleao, I say little word, in the Latin is instarere. And we're going to do a little bit of a word study on that down the road, not today. Comes the S-T-A-U-R is an Indo-European root word from which the Greek word stauros comes, the cross. And so we have the cross. The cross is the true instrument of God's creation. It is the true instrument that God uses to build his universal house and fill it with recipients of his glorious grace. So the mystery of God's will, which is to sum up all things and all beings in the heavens and on earth in Christ through bringing the external procession from God called creation into God. There is an external procession from God. It's called making everything that is. He brings into existence the things that don't exist. That's called creation. Creation is not just an instantaneous thing in the past. It goes on now, as Isaiah 48, 6 and 7 says. It is a new creation. We're going to be teaching that Genesis 1-1 is actually the last act of God in history. In the beginning is the end. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. His end goal, his objective, is the creation of a new heavens and a new earth in Christ. N-R-K, in Christ. We'll be seeing how that comes into play. The end is the beginning. The beginning is the end because Jesus Christ is the beginning and the end. The ultimate goal of God, then, is to bring the external procession of creation into himself so that God will be all and in all. All will be in God. God will be in all. And that's a pretty big picture. If all you know is I'm saved, you cannot walk worthily of the call that God has put upon your life. You can't do it. It's impossible. If all you know is I'm saved, you cannot and will not walk, as the scripture says, worthily of the calling of God. It's only when you realize and have spiritual understanding and wisdom with relationship to this mystery of God's will that you are able to walk worthy of his calling. If you don't believe that, we'll start right off with Colossians 1, 9, and 10. You can look at that on your own. The mystery of God's will to sum up all things and all beings in the heavens and on earth through all of time, through bringing the external procession from God into God and God into the external procession, So that God is to be all in all. That's God's end game. That's the objective of the divine missions. And the divine missions are the divine processions, are the divine persons, are the divine relations, is the triune God moving toward an objective in love in which he sums up all of created reality, all of human beings, And in the process, brings human persons into fellowship with the divine persons. And that's where we are right now. We're kind of stuck in the middle. 
stuck in the middle with you, as the song says. But then there's a second song that says, I'm happy to be stuck with you. That's my testimony. We're stuck in the middle. I'm stuck in the middle with you. And we have politicians and clowns to the left of us, etc. But that's... Uh, But I'm stuck in the middle with you, but according to Huey Lewis and the news, the good news, I'm happy to be stuck with you. So just thought you'd, yeah, you don't care about that. Anyways, so God will be all in all and all will be in God. The vertical beam of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, which you may even have in your hands already, is according to the Five notions. It's a representation of the five notions in God. The horizontal beam is the mystery of God's will, which according to the fully benevolent intention of God, who as who is as to the act of his substance and being, love, the act of God, which is love, is the mystery of his will. The inscription at the top of the cross reading one Yahweh or one Lord corresponds to Pilate's placard identifying the crucified one as Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, also known as One Yahweh. When you have lifted me up, then you will know that I am. Through the cross, God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us with the fullness of spiritual blessings in the heavens, in Christ, in Christo, right there, Ephesians 1, 3. In unimaginable love, he elected us in him, and auto. There is no election except the election in Christ Jesus. No one is elected to be outside of him, whereas in Adam all die, but in Christ all will be made alive. So there is no such thing as an election of some to damnation or a predestination of some to damnation for in Christ all will be made alive. God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ and our father, he's called both predestined us to glorious adoption an adoption that ends in the light of glory in conformity with God's son through Jesus Christ for himself to the praise of his glorious grace, that's caritas, and bestowed everlasting grace, ikeritosin, we have both caritas, the Greek, ver- the Greek noun grace, and ekeritosin, which is the aorist active indicative of the verb for begracing. We have, therefore, God has bestowed upon us everlasting grace in the beloved. There it is again, in Christo, only this time in the beloved. In whom we possess redemption through his blood, says the scripture, the forgiveness of all trespasses according to the wealth of his grace. I'm simply summarizing Ephesians 1, 3 to 7. On top of this, and this is where I want to take up today, our father has, quote, lavished this wealth of his grace on us along with, verse 8, along with all, or we could translate maximum insight and wisdom, or maximum wisdom and insight by making known to us. And how did he bestow this and lavish this maximum wisdom and insight on us? 
by making known to us. Notice that word. By making known to us the mystery of his will. Norizo. G-N-O-R-I-Z-O. That's an apocalyptic verb. It means to make known by revelation, by disclosure. It could not be made known by any human teacher. It is a divine disclosure. He made known to us his will, the mystery of his will, according to his benevolent intention in Christ. We're into eight now. God, our Savior, not only wills, and that doesn't mean wishes. He wills that all human beings get saved. That's his will. And that's, in fact, done. Because Titus 3, 4 says, we were saved when the benevolence and the philanthropy of God appeared. And it appeared in Christ crucified. We were saved. And so God willed and God has fulfilled that all get saved. But he also wills that they would come to the knowledge of the truth. And that's where there's a distinction among humankind. Some of us have come to the knowledge of the truth. And that truth means to come to understand the truth of God as embodied in Jesus, who is destined to embody all created reality as he already embodies all that is called divinity. In him, Christ, in Jesus, bodily, somatikos, as the Hebrew says, or as the Greek says, in Colossians 2.9, is all the fullness, the pleroma of divinity, in him bodily. He is one Yahweh. He is Yahweh. And you are complete in him who is head over all principalities and powers. He's not just head over the body of Christ consisting of human beings. He's also head over principalities and powers, heavenly beings that are part of that over which he is head. And so he will bring everything together in heavens and earth, all beings in all time in him. That's the father's plan. Nothing short of it. So he in turn embodies all divinity, Colossians 2.9, all of humanity. And that's why he's called the second man, the representative man, the second man, the final Adam. And so he embodies all of humanity redeemed and therefore he embodies all of created reality as the eternal word made flesh, flesh meaning material reality. In becoming flesh, he embodied all material created reality. Now, some years ago, a book came into my hands called Insight. And from the moment I began to read that book, it took about a year to read it, I think, God began to activate extraordinary insights in our little assembly. That book helped me to understand how to be receptive to the activation of divine insights and how to teach you how to do that too. And it began then. I don't even know what year that was. And so from that moment, he began to activate extraordinary insights, enlightening and illuminating the scriptures for us in ways that I had not imagined. He was lavishing on us and is today still lavishing wisdom and insight on us with regard to the mystery of his universally redemptive intention. 
He has abounded toward us with wisdom and insight with regard to the external objective of the divine missions. The missions, again, are the divine processions. They are the divine relations. They, that, they are the divine persons in relation and is the one triune God moving toward the fulfillment of of a great intention, as the Greek says in Isaiah 9, 5. That being to gather in and sum up all things and all beings in the heavens and on earth in Christ. One ten, Ephesians 1, 10. Get familiar with it in a good way. Thanks be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has lavished such astonishing grace on us. I'm speaking as a pastor of a little assembly on us, along with insight into the mystery of his will with regard to all of created reality in the heavens and on earth. That is to comprise it all of Christ. God has let us in on his divine objective by making it known, norizo, making it known making it intelligible to us, understandable to us. It means to make intelligible by divine revelation. As Jesus said to his own disciples, blessed are your eyes, for they see. Blessed are your ears, for they hear. And he's speaking of the mysteries. God has let us in on this mystery. Blessed are we, because God the Father has made known to us the mystery of his will, which is to gather in and sum up everything over all of time in his Son, and then to indwell his Son, and his Son as his Son indwells us. The Father is pleased to reside in his Son. I'm moving toward simplicity. I'm moving from complexity to simplicity. That diagram that you have is ultimately simplicity. It's the simplest way to express this. In Jesus Christ, all of divinity is embodied. And now because of his incarnation, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension, in Jesus Christ is embodied all of created reality. So God, who is pleased to dwell in his Son, the Father who's pleased to dwell in his son will be pleased to dwell in his son as his son embodies all things. And therefore God will be all and in all. He will move into all things. All things will move into him. The patristic theologians didn't know what to call that. So they call it theosis. They called it deification, but not in the sense of creation becoming divinity and they really tried to work that whole thing out. I'm studying it now again. It's remarkable. But it, there, it was their way of saying what Peter said quite succinctly. God has caused us to become partakers of the divine nature by these exceeding great and precious promises. And so the objective of the triune God is to sum up all things and all beings in the heavens on earth in Christ thus bringing the external procession from God called creation 
into God so that God will be all in all. In other words, all things are from him, through him, and to him in a universal return or homecoming, as Romans 11.36 teaches. The parable of the prodigal son is actually teaching that. It's not teaching the coming home of one son to a father. It's teaching of the universal homecoming to the father embodied in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the essence of true Christian mysticism. You can be a Christian mystic. True Christian mysticism is simply the knowledge of the mystery of God's will with regard to everything being in Christ. It is one thing to have this glorious grace lavished upon us in Christ, this saving grace, this redemptive grace, this forgiving grace. It is one thing to have this glorious grace lavished on us in Christ, the eternal Son of God, the Father, and in the eternally breathed Spirit. It's another thing entirely to understand that this amazing grace was lavished upon us within God's larger plan to sum up all things and all beings over the course of all time in his son. It's an entirely different thing altogether to see that horizon and to be given the vision of that horizon in Christ. And that's what the Holy Spirit is even though he's being resisted, as always. I like what Stephen said to the Jews in his time. He said, you, all, you resist the Holy Spirit now when he brings us new thing. You've always resisted him. Your fathers resisted him. Your grandfathers resisted him. They resisted him since the beginning. I could say the same thing about the church. The Holy Spirit's trying to fan out this worldwide, cosmic, universal-wide horizon of Christ's redemption but it's resisted. And the resistance is not against preachers. It is a resistance of the Holy Spirit. And that's a serious business we're talking about. And it's all because of attempting to maintain and save and preserve one's own life, one's own merit, one's own reputation. A dear friend of mine, Mark Whitmer, Pastor Mark Whitmer from Waco, once in a while he'll he listens to all these messages, and he gives me a text once in a while. And he caught me one time this week. I said, you caught me in the wilderness. I was kind of like lost and wandering around and uh, not knowing exactly what to preach or what to teach. But he said, I loved what you said, and he, I didn't know I said it this way. He said it better than I said it. He said, I love how you said that a crushed spirit is advantageous towards self-transcendence. And I said, I said that? And I wrote him back. I said, you said that better than I said that. But, of course, it comes from Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. God says, I, the Holy One, dwell in the high and lofty place in the ultimate height of the heavens and majesty with him also who is of a crushed spirit. Of course, the ultimate crushed spirit is Jesus Christ. And those of us who identify with him through various things in life, one way or another, your spirit's going to get crushed. That is, you're going to come to a place where you don't have your own independent self to lean on, where you're going to come to a place of weakness, of brokenness. And that's when you're going to be realize that God weakens us in the way because Christ was crucified in weakness 
and that he lives by the power of God. And so you come to discover in your crushed spirit that God has raised you up. You're not here to assert yourselves. We're here to transcend ourselves and put off the old man. And Mark said to me, he said, you know, I had an old beloved pastor, and one time he brought in a little post-it note, and he showed the congregation. He had a very uh, beloved pastor that he still has memories of. And the pastor said, the Holy Spirit told me something today. He told me, you're self-assertive, and I'm going to deliver you from that. I thought, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good promise. But he, he recognized that the way to exaltation and seat, being seated in our experience in the heavenly places is through humiliation, through humility. Those whom God humbles, he raises up. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and he will raise you up. A crushed spirit is advantageous toward self-transcendence. We live in a time in which the whole spirit of the age is self-assertion, amoral self-assertion, having nothing to do with morality or virtue, just self-assertion. God's will is the opposite of self-asserting. It's self-transcendence through an unimaginable love from God. And that causes people to, to love one another. It causes people to love the unlovely. It causes people to love their enemies. More on that down the road, and thanks, Mark, for waking me up to that one. And so, it's one thing, it is one thing to understand our salvation, our personal salvation. Nothing wrong with that, and I think God gave us lots of time to appreciate that, and we should. Our salvation, as great as it is, and as urgent as it is never to neglect it, and what it means, in a, or forget it, in Hebrews 2.3. That salvation is within a far larger sphere of benevolent divine activity than just your salvation or your family's salvation. I'm grateful, and I know you are too, that God has lavished on us the wealth of his grace. But I'm also thankful and even joyously so, this is where my joy is, joyously so. That he has lavished on us wisdom and insight by, quote, making known to us the mystery of his will. You may not know it, but I'm exegeting Ephesians 1, 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will as a matter of wisdom and insight. The mystery of God's will which he makes intelligible and understandable first to the apostles and prophets. We know that from Ephesians 3, 5. But Paul wants us to come up to his own understanding of the mystery in 3, 4 of Ephesians. But it was made first known by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 3, 5, to the apostles and prophets. God intends for it to be known by all of us in this time. And that mystery of God's will is the appropriate external term of the divine missions, the universal divine objective of God with regard to the external procession called creation. 
This is an approach to universal redemption that isn't been being taken now. And it's one that I've chosen to take. The wisdom and insight with regard to the mystery of God's will is wisdom as to how to live. That includes wisdom as to how to live. Well, how do you view people now if you know this universal intention and benevolence of God? You begin to imitate God's benevolent intention toward people when you realize his intention toward people. If you're a Calvinist in the classic sense and you believe that God has predestined most of humanity to an eternal damnation and there's no hope for them, it's impossible for you to love those people or to love all people. And you have your own little circle of elect. And you have to prove that you're elect by acting nicely and good and moral and upright. It's a mess. It's a disaster. I'd rather be an unbeliever any day of the week than to be a believer in a false god and a monstrous god at that. But in any case, I'm not attacking all Calvinists. There's all kinds of Calvinists, and not all of them believe in that horror show of a predestination of many to damnation. And so it has to do with how we live. The only way that we're going to live in a way that's worthy of our calling to glory is by the humility that comes with a spiritual understanding granted by the spirit of grace and truth of his universal will, which is to sum up everything in the heavens and on earth diachronically. That means including all of times, causing them to be comprised of Jesus so that God who is pleased to dwell in him will be pleased to dwell in all things which will have been summed up in him. Again, if all I know is I'm saved, I'll never walk worthily of my calling or worthy of the Lord. But if I know that I'm saved within a horizon of the mystery of God's benevolent will to sum up all human beings... And all things and history itself and all beings in the heavens and on earth in Christ, then I'll begin to be much more equipped to walk worthily of my calling, to love all of humankind and indeed all of creation, and thus to become an imitator of God through the love that is poured out in my heart by the Holy Spirit, who is the one who sealed us until the day of redemption. The conjunction of wisdom and spiritual understanding with walking, which is another way of saying living our lives worthy of the Lord, is neatly contained in Colossians 1, 9, and 10. Turn there first, then we're going to go to Ephesians 4, and I'm going to blast out a 10-verse section in about five minutes. Colossians 1, 9, and 10 I told you when I do Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, in a minute exegesis, I'll be reaching forward into other parts of Ephesians and pulling the rest of it in, in a kind of a secret way. Colossians 1, 9 and 10, I chose to do my own translation of this. Paul writes this, for this reason, since the day we heard, and that means the day Paul heard of the spiritual love, the love in the spirit that was burgeoning among them in verse 8. For this reason, since the day we heard, that is, of your love in the Spirit, we do not stop praying for you. 
asking specifically that you would be filled up with the knowledge of God's will. Please notice that. In all wisdom and spiritual understanding, another word for insight, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord. What does it say? So that you may walk worthy of the Lord. If all I know is I'm saved, then I don't have this wisdom and spiritual understanding of the mystery of God's universal will. I don't look around and see God's benevolent intention everywhere and for every person. So it's not until Paul says the love of Christ now controls me because I have determined that if one died for all, then all died. Now the love of Christ controls him. The love of Christ controlling us is living worthily of the Lord. And that doesn't mean matching up to or living up to the Lord. It simply means walking in a way that honors the Lord because your love is his love being poured out in your heart. So notice it again in verse 9 and 10. For this reason, since the day we heard of your love in the spirit, we do not stop praying for you, asking, asking specifically that you would be filled up with the knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. Being prolific in every benevolent activity and growing in the knowledge of God. Now in Ephesians 4. In a 10-verse section of Ephesians, verses 4, 1 to 10, and I translated this too, we find an elaboration of walking worthy of our calling in connection with the filling up of all things by Jesus Christ. He fills up all things with himself. Notice what it says in Ephesians 1. Paul's writing from a little prison in Atimea, somewhere in Asia Minor, pretty close to seven churches, not only Ephesus, but Laodicea and Colossae and a few other churches. Paul writes in verse 1, I, the prisoner of the Lord, appeal to you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all modesty. Notice that one. With all the opposite of self-assertion, incidentally. With all modesty... And humility with self-restraint, not self-assertion. Patiently bearing with one another in love. I just can't stand that person. I just can't stand the way they talk or speak or act or do. Well, I have news for you. You're not patiently bearing with one another in love. Making every effort, verse 3, to guard the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, listen to this translation, and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and that means the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's connected with the one spirit. The one baptism is the one spirit who baptized you into the one body. It isn't water baptism. One spirit, one baptism by which the spirit baptized you into the one body, one God and father of all, it says. 
And it doesn't mean all believers. It means all, 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 all of created reality. He is the father of all. Pater Panton. That's his name. Father of all. Pater Panton. Father of all. Paul later on, or mate, it's earlier than this, in 3, 14 and 15, genuflects his knee and bows his knee, he says, to the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its identity. He is the father of every family group in the heavens and on earth. He's the father of all. Bow your knee to him, as Paul did. And then he says, who is over all and through all and in all. You know, Paul's kind of speaking as one who's already there where God is all in all. Do you know maybe that's where he is? That's called Operation Epsilon, the name of this year's teaching. It's being in a high and holy place with him who is of a crushed spirit. The more crushed your spirit, the more you find yourself actually by faith in the experience of the substance of that future already. Faith is the conviction of unseen things, the assurance of things hoped for. But it's more than assurance. It's the hypostasis. It's the very substance of the future. Faith gives you the very substance and somewhat of an experience of the future where God is all in all. That's why Paul already sees this. He already, look at what it says. It says it right here. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul is speaking as one who's already present to 1 Corinthians 15, 28, because for him, faith is the very substance and presence of the hope for reality of God being all in all. Now, that's a transformation. Now, to each one, verse 7, grace was given, measured out by Christ who gave it. For example, he says to one, as he said to me, have a deep and abiding faith. It's a gift from him. He may say to another, have a profound and abiding compassion for people. He may say to another, have an enduring ability to teach, to lead, to guide or counsel. He may say to another, have a deep and abiding ability to heal to administrate, to organize. He may say, well, there's an infinite number of gifts. The reason that he gifts people is because people are cooperating in the mystery of his will to sum up everything in Christ Jesus. We are created participants in his uncreated life. For this reason, he says in verse 8, the scripture, it says, meaning the scripture, namely Psalm 68, 18 or the Septuagint 67.19 says, having ascended to the ultimate height, leading captivity itself captive. What's the captivity that he leads captive? He leads captivity all in captivity all that was captive to sin and death. When God talks about death as, an, as a being or a person, he talks about death being annihilated. When he talks about death or Hades as a place, he talks about death being evacuated. 
in any means and by any means, hell is empty, Hades is empty, death is an empty chamber, and it's an annihilated one-time reality. It's no longer a reality. Now, to each one grace was given, measured out by Christ who gave it. For this reason, it... That is, the scripture says, having ascended to the ultimate height, leading captivity itself captive, he gave gifts to people. You know what Psalm 68, 18 says? He gave gifts to people, especially rebellious ones, especially rebellious people, so that he could live among the rebellious. What did he do in my case? He chose a rebellious man, gave him a deep and abiding faith, and said, go teach the Bible. Wow. I was one of the rebels. I wasn't drawn. I was dragged. So I'm one that was dragged. I know what it's like to be dragged to the Lord. And it hurts. But he dragged me. And he said, here, have a deep and abiding faith. And I was saying, What do I do with it? What do I do with it? For years, I'm saying, what am I supposed to do now? And I didn't know. I still am learning now that he wants wants me to enter into the eschatological rest. There remains a rest, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. We haven't entered it yet. We're headed there. And so it actually says in the psalm, even to the rebellious that the Lord God, the blessed one, eulogetos, same word as Ephesians 1.3, incidentally, in the Greek text, may live among them. Verse 9, I love this. Now, what can this phrase, he ascended, mean? Except that he first went down or descended to the lower parts of the, the lower parts, that is the earth. He didn't say the lower parts of the earth. He said the lower parts, that is the earth. Why did he go from the ultimate height of heaven all the way down to earth and then ascend back up into the heavens and be seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, having made purification for sins so that he might guide everything toward that ultimate goal? Why did he descend all the way down to the earth, then all the way back to the ultimate heights of heaven so that he might fill the heavens and the earth with himself? Because his intention is to bring reconciliation to all things in the heavens and all things on earth, they may be comprised of him. So in the beginning, which is in the end, God makes the heavens and the earth new in Christ Jesus. Genesis 1.1 tells God's last act. He makes the heavens and the earth be in the beginning, or in arche, which is Christ. The last thing God does is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, hey, R.K., which is Christ, who is also the end, God makes the heavens and the earth be in Christ. That's the end. That's the whole picture right there in the first phrase of the Bible. You say, how can the end be the beginning? Because Jesus said, I am the beginning and the end. In, Gen- in, in Revelation 21.6, look, I'm making everything new. It's all done. I'm the beginning and the end. And he says it again in Revelation twenty two thirteen. I am the beginning, hey, okay, and the end, totelos. I'm the beginning and the end. So the beginning is the end, and the end is the beginning in Christ. So in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth means in the end and in the beginning, Christ, God makes the heavens and the earth be in him. That's God's plan. 
A few billion sins aren't going to stop that. He ascended, says Hebrews 1.3, to sit at the right hand of the majesty on high, the one of a crushed spirit, after having made purification for sins. What sins? All of them. So that from there he can guide all things by the word of his power toward that goal. Every builder, every house has a builder. But the builder of all things, Tapanta, is God. Hebrews 3, 4. Every builder, every house has a builder. But the builder of all things, Tapanta and Christo, is God. Ah, The whole point of this thing is I can't articulate it. The vision's there. The reality's there. I have to learn how to say it. So pray that I can articulate the mystery as I ought to. Verse 10. The one who descended is the one who ascended high above all the heavens in order to fill up the all things. Tapanta. In order to fill up with what? With himself. In order that he might construct the whole universe from the heavens to the earth and the heavens together with the earth and make it out of himself. So that God who's pleased to dwell in his son will be pleased to dwell in his son as his son indwells all things. So that God is all in and all. So. In closing, does this sound familiar? Remember the first increment of the doctrine of the mystery. No one has ascended into heaven. Jesus told Nicodemus, his night visitor. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven. The son of man. And then he said to his enemies in Capernaum in his bread of life discourse. He said, you you were offended that I said that I came from my father. Wait until you see me go back to where I was before. See, that same message offends people today. The Son of Man is none other than the second representative man. The last Adam, Christ Jesus, in whom all will be made alive, having descended, then ascended, Jesus Christ distributed gifts to people. Don't be distracted by Santa Claus distributing gifts to people. Here's Christmas. Jesus Christ ascending distributes gift to people. You know why? Because people are to be participants in the renewal of all things. That's why. So please notice the passage begins with an exhortation to walk worthy of the calling you've received. And it ends with filling up all things by Jesus Christ. So back and we'll close with this. Let's go back to the overture in Ephesians 1.3. Here's my translation. I told you I was going to exegete this and come up to the mystery of God's will by exegeting a certain passage. I've kept it as one sentence because it is one sentence in the Greek. English translations like to chop it up so it's more palatable for English speakers. I left it as one run-on sentence. I love how it sounds. 
Praise be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with the fullness of blessing in the heavens in Christ Jesus. Notice it. Insofar as in love he elected us in him, notice in him, before the creation of the universe, to be sanctified and without blemish before him, predestinating us for adoption through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the benevolent intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, there it is again, in whom, verse 7, again, we possess redemption through his blood, resulting in the forgiveness of all trespasses according to the wealth of his grace that he caused to abound to us along with all wisdom and insight by making known to us the mystery of his will according to his benevolent intention which he intended in him. Run-on sentence continues for the administration, verse 10, for the administration of the father's household. How does the father administer his household? He makes his house out of all things, and he fills them up with inhabitants that are filled up with his son. For the administration of his household. Oikonomene here. In the fullness of times, that means over the course of all time, as well as all things in created reality, to gather and sum up all things in Christ. There it is again, in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on earth in him. In the beginning, who is also the end, God made the heavens and the earth. God made the heavens and the earth to be in Arche, in Christ. That's God's whole goal, his whole plan, his whole end game. He gave away the mystery in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning is the end. This is the way God administrates his household. Look at Hebrews 3 sometimes. He brings all the universe under the household head, Christ. In the culmination and gathering up of all history, every house has a builder, said the Hebrew writer. But the builder, capital B, of all things, Tapanta, is God. God brings his house and his household to completion only when he sums up all of created reality in all of its times in Christ. This process is called anakephaliosis, Panta. It sounds like apocatastasis, pantone, the restoration of all things, as Peter put it. It sounds like palingenesia, the again genesis that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 19, 29. It sounds like Colossians 1, 20, through the peace that was made through the blood of his cross. There's instauration. He reconciles everything in the heavens and on earth, thrones, dominions, principalities, Powers, people, and parsley. All in Christ. I added the parsley. So in closing, another, well, I'm not even going to go there. I was going to go to 1 Corinthians 2, 7. What did Paul say? We impart God's hidden wisdom in a mystery. Which God predestined before the ages for our glory. Wow. That means our external glorification ultimately 
But right now it means our internal insight and illumination. God wants that now. So for the fifth time in Ephesians 1 9, we have in him. In Jesus Christ. The sixth time and seventh time in him are deployed in verse 10 with regard to the management of his household for the totality of time to gather up everything in the Christ, things in the heavens and on earth. And the eighth time, and eight signals the eighth day, which is the new creation of all things, is deployed in verse 11. In whom, look at it, also you were predestined to be made his inheritance according to the purpose of the one who effects Everything according to his unstoppable determination of his will. Go ahead and try to stop it. So I'm, I'm with Paul in Ephesians 4, 4, 3, 14 to 15. I'm with Paul. I bow my knees to the father. Who gives identity to every family in heaven and on earth, in the identity he gives to every family is Christ. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look into the perfect Torah of freedom, as James rightly called it. Where this word, this message, this gospel, this truth found in the scriptures is amazingly liberating. It reveals to us a horizon to which your benevolence reaches in Christ that is staggering to us. And Father, we have been awakened to an unimaginable love. For behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called his children, and we are. And it has not yet appeared what we shall be. But we know that in the beatific vision, when we see him as he is, we'll be like him. (laughs) We'll be like him because we'll be comprised of his son. Give us this assurance, Father. And may our faith truly be the substance of things hoped for. And the experience even, in some measure, of that eschatological rest for there remains a rest for the people of God. May Tetelestai Phalanx begin to enter that eschatological Sabbath and by doing so, draw others to do the same. Thank you, Father, that you've given us such a vocation that we can't even, we can't even amazingly think about it. It's impossible for us to even conceive that you've called us to be created participants in uncreated life and graced imitators of God, especially in the release and the giving of forgiveness, which is the tide upon which the kingdom of God comes into this world. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen. Thank you.